Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good. All right. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim R. Today, we're going to be interviewing Carol. How are you doing this morning, Carol? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. So we were just chatting a little bit, getting to know each other. So let's start off with how we usually do it. Let's dive in and talk about your childhood. Um, do you want the overall or the specifics? Give me some specifics. Let me know about how it was growing up, if you had both parents, and you know. No, um, my, mom, my mom left my father when I was a couple of years old and moved to a different state and immediately remarried. Um, so it was a split family and he had five kids so I was immediately backburnered um I didn't have a voice growing up there was a lot of abuse there was a lot of I mean all levels uh incest sexual abuse physical abuse um you know um if you don't mind me asking what was the ancestral part was that a dad or your brother um, it was my stepbrother. It started when he got home from the Marine Corps. He was 21 and I was eight. And my parents thought it was a good idea if we had, if we shared a room together. So. Wow. It's like, yeah, it continued on for three years. And then it was actually a friend from school um, that had told a person, like a touch program came to my school. And so she reported it. And then. Um, What's a touch program? I don't know. I guess it was like a, it was like a, it was like when the abuse program started coming to schools, like, you know, to tell children, hey, if if you were a family member, if you were someone, you know, uh, you know, tell us after the meeting sort of thing. So it was like when awareness started to begin, because at the time they didn't have the statute for for, um, um, I guess, the age, you know, the age requirement or the age difference, you know, for yeah. for us. Uh, sexual assault or molestation or whatever like because that was that was before the 80s it was in the 70s that this happened so anyways um I got called home from my friend's house and there was a detective in the house and um he gave me the choice my my stepbrother admitted to what he did um he didn't get any jail time he was ordered counseling and the counseling consisted of one hour with the church leader um, and I was given the option to stay in the home or to leave instead of it, you know, being a rule or my parents saying anything. And the guy told me that I could hang out with kids my own age and they had pool tables and um, it just sounded like a fun place to go, like much funner than my daily routine. So I left and and became a ward of the state that way. So you went into the foster care system? I did. And it was really traumatic. And I started to run away, um, which I didn't know at that time that running away was an actual crime um, in the state of Utah. So I lived from the time I was about 11 or 12 until, well, that was 11 or 12. I was on the streets for two solid years, like the homeless person flying a sign. Um, 
and I would sleep with people that would give me rides just so I had a place to sleep that night. Um, but I also felt loved and protected on the streets more so than I did at home because I, as I'd mentioned, I was backburnered and no one listened to me. I mean, I did have fun as a child because I was always in a tree. I was either climbing a tree or I was playing with animals or uh, chasing grasshoppers or whatever. Um, but I was the only girl in the family. So there was a lot of wrestling. We had a chin-up bar between the kitchen and the dining room. So in third grade, I had bigger muscles than half the boys in my school. <laughs> and um, yeah, so uh, um, running, running away introduced me to people. It also introduced me to more of a lifestyle. Um, my stepbrother that had done the molesting would get me high. So that was not my first introduction to drugs, but that was my first consistent introduction to a specific drug. So during the molestation, he would get you high beforehand? Yeah, like uh, smoke weed or drink alcohol. Yeah. Okay. Um, but in retrospect, I knew I was an addict. When I was four years old, my mom's neighbor, uh, we were all over at their house watching Swan Lake. And um, he asked me if I wanted some candy and he gave me some of his mom's tranquilizers off the kitchen table. Um, well, I kept sneaking back into the kitchen so I, I could eat more candy because I liked the way it felt. I, I remember that at four years old. And then um, by the end of Swan Lake, I was being taken to the emergency room because I had overdosed and I was run up, you know, falling into walls as my mom. And that was at four years old. That was at four. So that's wow. my first, that's my first drug use that I recall. But as far as the obsession and compulsion part of the disease, that's, that's the first time that I can clearly remember behaving that way. So how was life on the streets? Like, what would your day consist of? Um, it, it was fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, actually. Um, how so? Um, lots of concerts, lots of doing whatever the hell I want. Uh, it was, it was in, during the eighties, like the early eighties. So, um, I made friends with club owners. So I was always there. I got fed. Um, I had people that were concerned about me. Um, so it was a guy from the streets that gave me my first gun. I was 12 years old with a 22 year, 22 revolver on the inside of my jacket other people like gave me Chinese stars to keep in my pockets. Crazy shit. Um, I'm assuming it was because the streets were dangerous. Well, they saw a danger I didn't see. Right. Like to me, to me, all of the assaults, because I'd already grown up in such a violent home environment and such a, you know, I'd been abused at four, five, six, seven, eight, and so on sexually from different people that that shit was normal. So short of getting murdered, you know, I didn't really have anything to protect myself from. So it's not every day that people try to kill you. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, I felt more protected and more loved and more concerned on the streets than I did in my own home as a child. And then um, um, one day the drugs turned on me and and that's when it became not fun anymore you know like um 
I started having that that hunger or like as alcoholics refer to it as that unquenchable thirst. Um, and that's kind of like where everything changed. So you remember around that time frame when it changed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd already, I'd already had uh, my two daughters. Well, it started when I was when I was married. I had my two girls. So I was probably like around 20, 22, 21, 22. See, I worked in a club since I was 19 and I was going to school. Um, when I when I graduated my school, they actually uh, tried kicking me out on a technicality, which would have made my whole school uh, null, null and void, like all of that effort and all of that work. And um, that was the first time I experienced like discrimination. Um, so during the time you were homeless, you were still going to school? Yeah, I, I, I finished high school. Man, my story is so long. Uh, when I was 15, okay, so I went from 7th to 11th grade because I told you running away was a crime, right? So uh, they finally got sick of me, basically, said they had no other bed. They couldn't find a bed for me. So they put me in the state hospital when I was like, I don't know, 11, 12. They said it was for a 30-day observation. Uh, well, during the course of the observation, my parents moved counties, which means the caseworker would have changed. Well, my case fell through the cracks. So nobody knew where I was for like a year. So every three months in that institution, they would do, we would take a new ACT test and I would put a higher grade level on it. So that by the time I got a caseworker and got removed from there, um, I was at 11th grade equivalency or higher. Um, so I went from there to a foster home. Three weeks into that foster home, um, I had started high school and the foster parent had um, had a nervous breakdown. Now, one of the institutions I was in, I had stayed in contact with one of the one of the counselors from there. And that person wrote me while I was in the state hospital. And um, anyways, the lady that I was staying with who had a nervous breakdown because she found out either her or her son had cancer through a dining room table through the sliding glass doors. And she got carted off to a behavioral unit. And so now I'm tripping like, what's gonna happen to me? So I ran away again, because that's what I knew how to do. And I knew where people were, but I couldn't get to those people unless I left where I was. So I started reaching out to this counselor. Um, it took me three weeks to find him because back then all we had were pay phones and, and a quarter. And so, um, and this was like the one, probably the one adult that I trusted most in my life. But the short of the story is that um, after I contacted him and he came and got me, he was told to either take me to juvenile detention or to a female's house. Instead, he took me to his house. He said I could have his bed. He'd give me the couch or he'd take the couch. And um, 10 minutes later, he came into the bedroom, scooped me out of the bed, um, proceeded to sexually assault me. And um, I, I don't remember the next two years of my life. Why is that? I guess from shock. I'll never forget his name. But I know that um, I don't remember the next two years. There was a lot of drugs, I'm sure. A lot of drugs. Um, I really I really have no answer for that. I sought counseling when I was 17 or 18. Um, I do remember, like I said, when I was 15, because I had, had one daughter already. Um, I, was, I was 
illegally kicked out of high school because I got pregnant in high school in 11th grade. Um, I told my mom that the school had kicked me out and she just kind of went, oh, you know, instead of me as a parent, I would go to the school or I would go to the school board or I would want to find out whatever. But my mom, as mentioned before, I was back burned, so she was not active in my life. She didn't do anything to defend me or protect me, therefore teaching me uh, not to know how to defend myself or protect myself uh, in that respect. So I met a gal on the streets. Her name was Margarita. She had a little girl, and she told me about the high school, the adult high, and that's actually where I graduated from. And then I met another gal when I was on the streets. I had an apartment and a job, and she had gotten me interested in college because she had already had a two-year degree from Rochester in anthropology, and then uh, was stayed with me. We lived together. We worked together. We hung out together. And then she was going to Laramie, Wyoming to finish her anthropology degree. She got a four-year degree. And um, that got me thinking about what do I want to do with my life? Because as a child, when I was eight, I didn't think I would live to be 12. When I was 12, I didn't think I'd live to be 15. When I was 15, I didn't think I'd live to be 19. When I was 19, I didn't think I'd live to see 21. And then I turned 22. And then it's like, well, what am I going to do with my life? So even though you were on the streets and running around, you still had goals. I, 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 I once I knew what I, what I, I, that I had options, that things were possible. Yes. Then I acted on them. It's not, not to say that I went out on the streets with goals premeditated. I didn't have those. I was just trying to stay alive. I was just trying to get away from the people that hurt me. And I just wanted to be left the fuck alone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What was the first drugs you tried after just like the normal weed and alcohol? What was like the first, if you did any, was there any hard drugs involved? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, well, Coke was one of them. I don't think speed, well, speed was a thing, but I hadn't even heard of it. Um, I did a lot of acid. I had so much fun on like acid and mushrooms and, and, um, uh, pills like Valium and whatnot. Uh, they were freely given to me. I never had to do anything for them. I never had to pay for them. Um, where I where I came from before I moved here, the that whole life and world was totally different. Um, I didn't hear things like like trick, like you know, do you trick? I never heard that before in my life. I had, um, I guess, this above then kind of attitude that. You know, hey, I work, I go to work and I have money and I will pay for my shit and I will not be that demeaning person like you see on TV. I will never be like that person on the street. I will never be homeless. Um, um, I will never sell my ass. I will never do what you want me to do just to get a hit. And, you know, eventually all those things did come to pass. So did you end up going to college? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was saying about about the discrimination. I finished college, um, but we had to do a a hands-on practical thing. And, and uh, the deadline was, was December 31st. Well, because of Christmas holiday, I didn't finish until the first weekend in January. That's what I was told to do. And um, then they withdrew me from school, meaning that all of my college participation was null and void. And the director of education said, based it on my job, because like I said, I worked in a club 
And she said, well, based on your employment, we don't believe that you're serious about your education. And I'm like, I just, I just invested a year or two of my life and you're telling me that I'm not serious about it based on my employment. Well, unless you're going to pay my rent, I still have to pay my rent somehow. And I have two girls to take care of. <clears throat> so yeah, I have, um, I have two professional licenses with the state of Florida. Cool. What was life like during your college years? Did you ever find residency? Were you ever living in a dorm or was it you were living on? No, the I, had, I had an apartment. It wasn't um, it wasn't like going through a university. Um, I had looked into the university. Excuse me. I had looked into the university um, for a PA program, but they said out of 150 to 200 applicants, they only accepted 24. Hang on, I got to let my dog in. So I figured I would be 60 before I ever got accepted. Come on, Kelly. Um, so I went to a trade college for massage therapy. I went to the first school in a five-state area. Uh, I went to, I went at night. So I worked during the day and then um, took my state boards exam and started practicing. And what was life like when I was in school? I yeah. partied a lot. I had, I had wine parties. Um, I didn't really do a lot of drugs uh, because I hadn't gotten really like it. My disease had not taken over my life then. You know, there was actually like probably a six or seven year gap where I didn't do any hard drugs at all. I just drank occasionally. <clears throat> so there were times in college where you, you were able to control yourself. I don't know if it was control myself. I just had other things to do. So you didn't have time to do the drugs. Oh, I didn't. Have, I didn't have an interest to do the drugs because I was hanging out with my 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 oldest girls were very young, and I was dating this guy, um, who was like district manager of some restaurant. So, um, you know, my life was work, school. He would come over on the weekends. We would go hiking. Um, so it was kind of structured in that in that sense, and um, and that's how life was for a few years until there was a betrayal in the relationship that I had found out about, and then um, I had got found out I had cancer too. So that's when things started unraveling, and my disease started to take over. What age was that? Uh, early twenties. Early twenties. Yeah, very early 20s. Uh, I had four surgeries because uh, I had cervical cancer. And um, the doctor I had, the oncologist was very, uh, he, he, he didn't take it very seriously because of my age. And he had every checkup came back abnormal. So, you know, there would be another surgery, but just the, the mental and emotional mind fuck that goes with that. Um, you know, a 20 year old equates cancer with immediate death instead of knowing the medical options that are out there. So I started taking more and more pills and drinking more and more and becoming more like bipolar emotionally. And it was hard to focus. What kind of pills were you popping? Whatever I had, my doctor gave me a prescription for like Valium and Somas. That was a thing back then. And so I took a lot of them. <laughs> And what was the second one? Bop down you and what? Somas. It's like a muscle relaxer. Okay. Yeah. No, I've never taken it. Yeah. I've taken muscle relaxers before, but I've, I've never heard of it. It might have been that. 
I think these were, uh, uh, I'm not sure if they were narcotic based or not. I just, I heard eventually that they were addictive, uh, which I kind of believe because I went from taking like one to three to whatever. So let me ask your opinion on this because just because you said that you were able to stop for like seven years at one point. Do you think that you're an addict or a drug? Okay, so I when I was doing some research, I read a lot about this stuff. There's a guy who thinks that there's a drug abuser or an alcohol abuser and an addict. He said the main difference is, he goes, you take a college kid, for example, drinks all the way through college. Every, You know what I mean? Like his, uh, yeah, his, symptom, his symptoms look like he's an alcoholic. But mm-hmm. the second he gets out of college, he just stops. He goes to real life and he never has to go to rehab. He never has problems. So he's considered a quote unquote abuser. An addict is the person who just continues. But okay, the so abuser my- is like, if you give them a reason, like me, I don't know. I might be an abuser because this is my first try at sobriety. And the mm-hmm. reason is, is because I have a daughter. So it might be the one reason I now have to stay sober the rest of my life. Or for all I know, I relapse and I'm considered an addict who just throws my life away time after time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, my understanding is the opposition of depression is purpose. And an addict can be defined or, or the um, the predisposition of an addict is DNA and uh, childhood trauma, which I have both yes. and a lot of, and a lot of. So during the seven years that I didn't use as much or uncontrollably or it hadn't taken over me yet, it was still growing because addiction is, is a progressive disease. So it was progressive enough at that point to still be manageable for me to still have some consequences, but the consequences did not make my life unmanageable. And that's in step one. Am I powerless over my, over my addiction? And has my life become unmanageable, my life had not become unmanageable enough to me, to other people. I was batshit crazy, but I was still able to get the things that I wanted to do, get done, done, you know? I've had naysayers my whole life, whether they were right or wrong. When I was first told that I was an alcoholic by a counselor, I thought blackout drinking was normal. I thought that's what was supposed to happen when you go to the club. I thought throwing up is what came after a, a, a glass of Crown and Coke. So there is, there is a difference, and I understand what you're saying. I think I just had more purpose during those seven years because when the betrayal came and the heartache came, well, then the feelings take over. And when the feelings take over, then the addiction has space to grow because there's no rational thought or thinking because I'm too busy feeling and I'm wallowing in my feelings. So then, so then the obsession and the compulsive thoughts get stronger and then the acting out happens. And then after, you know, however, as soon as the drug, drink or drug gets introduced, they don't call it a controlled substance for nothing. Well, then I'm controlled, right? but I still have this mental that I need another one or I can stop any time. My rational, my rational thinking is, is not so rational anymore. You know, like a person that, that like, like a crackhead that can go to a meeting or get 30 or 60 days and then think I got $20 in two hours. I'll stop at 20. That can, that never happens. But our thinking will convince us. I have to go pick up my kid at five. And right now it's one o'clock. I got time to go do a 20 and then I'll go get my kid. So the, the action and consequence thinking 
we're not seeing the consequence of our action because we think we can stop. We've convinced ourselves. I convinced myself I could stop many times when I couldn't. <clears throat> Sounds like you take your step work seriously. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what what did you say to people the first time they accused you of being an alcoholic or an addict? Like what was... I know you said something to the therapist, but did you have multiple people tell you that or is just the therapist or counselor you were seeing? Here's the thing about the therapist. I think the therapist actually knew the guy that had raped me when I was 12, because when I told her I wanted to do something about it and prosecute this person, she told me she didn't think I was ready for that. And I got really fucking tired of people telling me and treating me like I couldn't do shit or that I wasn't ready or that I didn't deserve or, or, or certainly made me feel not a part of. I, I learned to say, I learned to say, go fuck yourself real quick because it's that go fuck yourself mentality that pushed the wrong people away and kept the right people in. I know that's not like a recovery term, but I really think it should be in the basic text because it's healthy and it's helpful because the only way I, 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 I let go of one life to grow another one, I did not get the, the life I have today was not handed to me. Getting my children back was not handed to me. I was told in prison I would never have a professional license again, and today I have two through the Board of Health of all places. You were in prison? I was in prison. Tell us a little bit about that. How'd you end up there? Okay, so um, um, my oldest daughter had, my oldest daughter, uh, this is a backstory. My oldest daughter I went into an independent living program out of town. So she was in Panama City. I'm in Pensacola. Well, she fell in love with her high school sweetheart. And she had lied about her age. So he didn't know that she was younger than whatever. Well, one day I get a report from the center that she went to school and never came back. Because I'm no longer the custodial guardian. I can't do anything. I cannot call. I cannot call the center for the lost, you know, or help find this child or or anything. I couldn't even I couldn't even give NCIC information for the police to have information on their database to look for. That was the caseworker's job. Caseworker didn't do her job. So, um I forgot where we were going with this. What was the original question? I'm sorry. Tell us a little bit about prison going to prison. You were giving me the backstory. Yeah, so, so going yeah, so going to prison. So on that that there was a two year period of me not knowing where my daughter was. And once again, the feelings of victimization, of helplessness, of hopelessness took over, right? And I didn't know what my options were. I didn't feel like there were resources. I felt like a victim again. Um, and so they, they say in AA about fear run, fear run riot or self-will run riot. Yeah, that was me all day, every day. So I would drive around. I drove multiple states and got so many speeding tickets. I don't even remember. So I kept getting, um, I kept getting tickets for driving on suspension because eventually they suspended my license for so many tickets, but you know, I kept driving. And then on the fourth time I got habitualized and that's what I actually went to prison for was, um, driving on suspension. Really? How long, how long were you there? 18 months in a maximum security prison. 18 months in a maximum security prison for driving. Yeah, can you believe that shit? Well, okay, so technically it wasn't for driving. It was for violating my probation or community control. That's what it was technically for. But the original charge was driving on suspension. 
That's crazy that they put you in maximum security for that. Well, they have that's the sorting center. I mean, they because prison sentences can be so long that they put they send all the women to one main center, which was Lowell Correctionals in Ocala, Florida. And then you spend a, a couple weeks or a couple months in 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 our uh, R2R, which is like recovery or receiving, receiving and sorting or something like that. I can't remember. And then they will send you to your different dorms or different prisons from that from that point. And so I, because I had a college education, or I guess I spoke a little better than some of the other inmates, I got a job in the warden's office. And um, I kind of played on the psychiatric evaluations from all the previous counseling and all the running away. So I was put in the dorm with the old ladies and the sick people. <laughs> but I was, I was housed across the street from death row. So that was kind of crazy. Uh yeah, that, that does sound kind of crazy. Wow. It, it, all, it all was really crazy. And it was while I was in prison that um, that I was told, you know, you'll never have a professional license again. And I, and I just chose not to believe him because I realized a lot of my reality was based on my belief of other people's opinions, not facts. I had made a lot of life-changing decisions based on opinion, not facts. I didn't do the research, you know, I just took people for what they said, not realizing that some people will say things to fuck you up. And sometimes it's not that people don't want me to have, don't, don't, sometimes people, haters don't want to, don't want me to have what I have because they want it. They just don't want me to have it. Does that make sense? There are some people like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm not talking about me, well, me specifically too, but I see it everywhere. Like, like people will like, like, let's talk about women for a minute, women in general, women being petty, women seeing women with a guy that they think is hot. And they'll be like, look at her. Oh my God. Who does she think she is? Right. Yeah. 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 Well, just take that and expound on that and other avenues of life that happens every day. Yeah. Yeah. So was it scary in prison? How, how was your stay overall? Um, I cried a lot before I went and when I got there, um, I kind of lost all emotion. I just accepted where I was. And actually, um, I took advantage of every class they had to offer. Cause see my son's father, I, I, I told you I had four kids and I had, they came in two sets. So I'd had, I had a son, uh, off of the cancer thing, uh, because when I was married, my husband kept telling me he wanted to put off having kids. And then with the cancer thing, it became an ultimatum of we're going to do a hysterectomy. And I'm like, can we try one more time? And then um, that surgery cleaned me up as best they could, but the checkup was abnormal. And this is, this was the basis for my divorce was because I, he said he was sick of hearing me talk about kids. And so now my maternity's threatened. I think you're an asshole. And I didn't care if I had to go to the sperm bank and play design a guy to get pregnant, but I was going to get pregnant one more time. And that's just another example of, of living in insanity of the disease. It has nothing to do with the drug or alcohol because those are just symptoms. It has to do with my thought process and not thinking about you know, am I even stable enough for another kid? Can I, can I feed another kid for like the 18 years? Can I help them? Can I help them create a life for themselves when I didn't even have a life for myself? So, um, yeah, it was, 
I just went into prison with this acceptance and belief that whatever was going to happen was going to happen. But my son's father told me things like prison's better than jail because you get outside more. Prison's better than jail because you don't have to sit on a bunk all day. You can walk the yard or you'll have work to do or you can go to school or, you know, there's just more things. And he was right. And he also said, you know, if if you ever see a candy bar on your bunk, don't eat it. You're going to owe someone something then. Yeah. And I didn't want to owe anybody shit. Yeah. Smart. Very smart. Yeah. So I basically so, did just that. I stayed to myself. I took as many classes as possible, not knowing that those classes were preparing me for the miracles that came ahead. Well, that's what they, I was going to say. It sounds like that they do offer some type of help when you're in prison. Because when I think about it, I don't think about prisoners going to classes and doing I just think about, like you said, them sitting there all day in a bunk worrying about being stabbed or something. That, well, that happens. I mean, I, I, I saw a girl that didn't need, no, she was right behind me. And this girl was just breathing. She wasn't talking. She wasn't looking at anyone. She was just breathing and walking behind me. And this chick next to her didn't like the way she sounded when she breathed and clocked her in the head. And they mm. both got dropped off. I mean, I've seen some crazy shit. I watched a girl that had a broken leg get 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 five years added to her sentence because the CEO that was having a bad day that tossed her bunk in her area and, and accused these little teeny scraps of paper as contraband and then told her to clean it up while she was on crutches and like one of the crutches touched his shoe. So he accused her of assaulting him and charged her with assault on a Leo. Five years, mandatory. I mean, I've seen some shit. Fucked up shit does happen. But fucked up shit happens when you're doing the right thing too in real life. So that so the difference is is how 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 do you respond or react to it? Because that's when I that's where I learned powerlessness at, and that's where I learned acceptance at too. And that's where I learned how to stay in my lane. Like all I can do is write a letter to the warden saying what he said happened did not actually happen the way he said it. And this is what I saw. So it sounds like so just a, bit, a little background as far as addiction. So do, are you part of, are you, do you do Alcoholics Anonymous? Do you do 12 steps and all that? I, oh, definitely. I, I have that, sponsors. I, I worked, I worked in jail. You what? Did that start in jail or in prison? Nope. Nope. Uh, my, my visits to the room started when I first lost custody of my kids and FFN told me, you know, hey, you need to get a what a psychological evaluation, a drug and alcohol evaluation, and that put me into an intensive outpatient program. I had all these little boxes to check, so that was my first time in the rooms of NA. Um, I had actually started in AA. I had an AA sponsor that lasted like two months. I was pregnant with my last daughter when I started going to AA, um, and then one day she just stopped calling me back and I took it all personally because once again, I'm an addict and I think everything's about me. And I didn't realize that she had gotten arrested so that when I went back out and then I ended up going to jail, who's the first place, per, hers, who's the first face I see, but hers. Mm -hmm. And so she kept me in hot cocoa and, and a honey buns. Um, but when I got out, uh, I did not understand. I did not understand as Bill sees it. I did not understand the big book. To me, it sounded more like somebody was trying to push religion down my throat, which I was absolutely against, than, than breaking things down into everyday practicality and understanding. And I felt more at home in the rooms of NA because now my stories weren't so crazy, right? 
Like I used to tell my friends in AA, I wish my bottom was yours. I wish the worst, my worst day was your, I wish my best, like my best day was their worst day. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, sorry. It makes no sense to me. I, I don't think, I don't think if I peed my pants because I was fucked up, that that would be enough for me to change my life. I know for a fact it was not enough for me to change my life, but it was a woman in, it was my sponsor in NA. Um, I was really pissed off at my mom. I wanted to go get high, but instead I just cleaned up her yard and she was like, oh my God, that's so great. I'm so proud of you. And I'm looking at her like, are you fucking nuts? Like, what are you proud of? All I did was clean up her yard because it was bugging me to see it's still about me. And she said, no, that's the next right thing. Instead of getting high, you went and did something for someone else. And I'm like, no, 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 it wasn't for someone else. It was for me because it was bugging me in my mind. But in reality, yeah, it was for someone else and it helps so someone else benefited from it. But the moral of the story is I did not get high over it. And at the end of the day, that's what, that's what matters. I've heard it said in the rooms that whatever keeps you clean that day is your higher power. And when I was in AA, I heard a lot of God, God, God. And I had a big problem with religious God, you know, with the God in the box, that the God you only talk to on Sundays. And that's only if you're wearing the right shoes and the right dress. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So tell us, let's talk about your recovery. Okay. Tell me about when, when I guess, when you finally said i'm obsessed i'm a drunk i'm an alcoholic i'm a drug addict and i need to get some fucking help well um okay so i'm gonna say that that i i'm not saying that i haven't had attempts or sincere efforts at, at getting clean and putting some time together and working some steps in fact i had a few years put together but once again like in step four it talks about resentment um and and reservations well I never thought that my sponsor would try to get with the guy that I was supposed to marry that I was living with and that actually happened about five years ago so when I found out I had 20 bucks in my wallet some hurt feelings and I went to to a place I knew to go right I've heard it said in the rooms that once you get some recovery in you, it will fuck up your next high. And that's basically what happened because I bought my drug of choice. I gave some to dude, broke them off. I go to fire mine up and the drug didn't work. So I put on another piece, I fire it up. And instead of hearing that train, I heard save your ass and not your face. And I realized at that time that all of my previous efforts were to save my face. Because I thought that's what that's that's that that was the important part was the way others perceived me instead of the way I perceived myself. Because up to that point, I did not have a relationship with myself. I was in survival, right? I was still in people pleasing. I was still in acceptance, not my acceptance, but other people's acceptance of me. I was I, I lived in conditions. I did not know what unconditional love was. So at that moment it was it, that was my moment of clarity that, that they talk about in the rooms where um I realized I had a choice because so many times I made decisions based off of my back being against a wall not like weighing the options or being you know making an informed decision 
Mm-hmm. And at that, at that moment, I realized I could fire her as a sponsor, get someone else, and break up with him. So that's why my clean date's August 5th of 2017. So what did you do to stay sober? Um, I called, and I actually called my old sponsor. Um, I called my old sponsor and uh, asked her if she would sponsor me again. And she said, she asked me what had changed. And I told her um, that I had relapsed again and that this time I wanted to save my ass and not my face. And she said, thank, thank God. And she started crying. Um, so what had changed was a different level of honesty. I share in meetings that, you know, because the spiritual, the spiritual principle for the first step is honesty. Well, when I first came in the rooms, um, my highest level of honesty was that, yes, I got high. But, but, I, but I didn't have the clarity to be honest on other levels of my life. So, um, so I tell people my honesty came in layers and I also tell them that every bottom has a trap door to another bottom and to another bottom and to another bottom. So you can either rise up with different levels of honesty, or you can continue to go down through the trap doors of bottoms until you die. And so, yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's, that's what was different was I worked even more diligently. I finally took suggestions. Um, I did some very uncomfortable things I didn't want to do. Like the guy that had cheated on me with my sponsor, he went after my son. Um, and of course, the police custody? came. What do you mean went no. after your son? Violently and physically. Okay, he attacked. Yes, but it was just within the law, right? But I already had enough awareness that what he was doing was leading up to bigger and worse things. So law enforcement got involved. But he was very convincing at what did I do? And she's crazy and she's the drug addict. You see, that happens with like narcissists around others is that they will get other people to believe that I'm the one that's crazy, all the while pushing me to act out on crazy. So other people, so I lose credibility, right? Well, this time I just stayed calm. This time I was honest. This time I reached out. This time I took suggestions. So once the police uh, did not arrest him that night, my son and I went and stayed somewhere else the next day. And then we started, we went to the court, courthouse, filed paperwork on him, went to the sheriff's department, filed paperwork on him. It was like a two month process. It finally came out in court. I finally got a restraining order against him. And for the first time I took responsibility of my life without relying on the kindness of other people. So how are you feeling nowadays as far as your sobriety tired tired <laughs> yeah i'm tired because that gift of desperation i tell this to my sponsors too that gift of desperation that that originally that initially kept me clean uh can be a motherfucker because it 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 bleeds into other other areas of my life like when that split happened and now it's just me and my kid well i wasn't working when that split happened but the bills still have to get paid so i i had to like find a job and ask for help and find resources. And like I talked about the honesty levels or, you know, the trapdoor levels, it was the same thing with employment levels. Like I went from, it's not that I went from job to job, but each job, I went from one job to a better job to a better job, but I was still a workhorse and I would still work myself to death. 
And I would always have a side hustle because you learn that in the streets, right? Always have more than one source of income. Um, and, and actually it wasn't, today's my first Tuesday off without having another job to go to because last week I closed my private practice downtown and I just work one main job and then I have some clients that I work on. But it's not like I'm, I'm here and I'm here and I'm here. And then I go home and have to do mom stuff and pick the kid up from school. And um, so today's the first real day of breathing. And I'm, yeah, I'm tired, my soul's tired, but I'm grateful. I'm really grateful. But can I just say one thing real quick? Um, <sighs> so we talked about unmanageability in addiction. Um, my first example of, of my life being unmanageable clean was, was shortly after that split because I worked cr like crazy and then I would get off work. Um, I would go to a meeting. I would fellowship, you know, like you said, the meeting after the meeting, and then I would come home, rinse and repeat. This went on every single day. And whether I wanted to go to a meeting or I meant to go to a meeting, someone would always call and say, hey, are you going to the meeting tonight? Oh, yeah, 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 I'll be there. And that wasn't like I consciously wanted to go. I just went because I said, yeah, I'll be there. Um, well, after about three weeks of this or so, I was home for a minute and my son and his girlfriend were in the kitchen and I decided to make dinner for them. And it was while I was like cooking chicken that I realized I hadn't cooked a meal in three weeks. Not for myself, not for anyone else. And I was like, holy fuck, my life has become unmanageable clean. So... I handled it like I would a job and I went to that meeting. I, I still went to that meeting, but I got the meeting schedule and I took my day planner out and then I scheduled what meetings I was going to go to on what days so that I wasn't, you know, to do something different because that's what yeah. that first sponsor that said it was so cool that I cleaned my mom's yard when I was pissed off. I took, I took her suggestion, which was do something different and do the next right thing, whatever the next right thing is in front of you, not the next right thing, 10 steps ahead. The next right thing that's in front of you, right? That right now. Sounds like some good advice. That was going to be, it looks like we're getting towards the end here. Do you yeah. have anything? Because, you know, obviously you said you're got some clients who you handle stuff like this professionally. Do you have anything you want to say to people listening um, as far as maybe some advice or you know, something you've done that has helped, you know? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I don't believe they call this a just for today program for nothing. All we have is today. Today is what's real. The, the middle word and the word believe is lie, L-I-E. So the real truth comes from experience. That's what I believe. So when we're encouraged to share our experience, strength and hope, share your honest experience, um, live your best life today, because that's all we have is today. Yesterday doesn't matter, and tomorrow's not here yet. Thanks for letting me share. That's awesome. That's so awesome. You did great. Thanks. So thank you for coming on today. And for anyone watching or listening, please go below and click subscribe. Give us a like. Also, we are on Facebook, where you can go to our group page, Addicts Anonymous, and see that under the events tab, we have a ton of different meetings we do daily. We also have us on Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, so follow us there. And that's all I have for today. So until next time.